Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema. A director, actor, franchise, or genre, it doesn't matter, because it's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month we're talking about musicals. And this week we're talking about... Moulin Rouge. That's right, the 2001 film directed by Baz Luhrmann, starring... Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman. You got it this time. I got it this time. I think I said Christina Aguilera like three times leading up to this recording. Wow. Well, she's in Mm -mm. like the big music video that's associated with this movie. Yeah, the music video, not the movie itself. Threw me off a little bit. Ain't gonna lie. But yeah, so Moulin Rouge, this is a a you pick. This This is is a a me pick. But I think we're gonna talk about... One thing before we talk about the movie itself. Yeah, because the Oscars were about a week ago. Uh, yeah, this this past weekend for us at the time of this recording, and it was a pretty good show. It was the 95th anniversary of the Oscars. I really enjoyed it. I know you were recording at the time, so you didn't get to actually watch the Oscars. Yeah, I was in the middle of um, recording a different podcast, so I had the Oscars on in like, the background, so I was able to check every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I got to see Brendan Fraser win his Best Actor Oscar. Which I was got so deserved. A very deserved. Uh, I got to see Jamie Lee Curtis win her Best Supporting, and I got very to see... Very deserved. <laughs> yes, yes. And I got to see Everything Everywhere All at Once just eat up every other category yeah i don't know what would be considered a sweep because i know all quiet on the western front took home a lot of oscars too but it took home a lot of the technical awards yeah but everything everywhere all at once was nominated for 10 oscars and it won seven out of ten a sweep generally is you win everything you're nominated for but jesus christ it it won pretty fucking close and it oh, won yeah. pretty much all the major awards best director best Best picture. picture, best actress, Michelle Yeoh, who really deserved this win. Uh, he Hun Kwan, who was best supporting actor. Uh, but yeah, like the Oscars were actually a pretty good show. My pick for the movie that I wanted to win a bunch of uh, <laughs> Oscars won zero. Yeah. Yeah, because I picked Banshees of Inishirin. I thought that was, that was my favorite movie of the year. From what I've heard, it's a really good movie. So I thought, okay, maybe, you know, maybe Colin Farrell's going to take it. Should, should we lift the curtain and let everyone know you watched zero Oscar movies this year? I watched Elvis. You watched, oh, you finished Elvis? I finished it. Ah, I see, I see. I mean, I was going to watch Tar, and then you told me don't do it. Uh, I don't think I said don't do it. I think I said it's, Tar is definitely a movie I don't think you would like. Tar is a very slow movie about very eccentric people and it's it is yeah that that movie is just um i got i got my issues with tar i'll put it like that i'm not a huge fan of the movie but i thought (laughs) kate blanchett was fucking great in it kate blanchett's amazing in anything she does yes so next month we're gonna be doing lord of the rings in your dreams yes um but yeah so you saw elvis that ties into a movie that we're about to talk about. It does. By Baz Luhrmann. Yes, yes. So, your thoughts on The Moulin Rouge? Oh, I mean, I absolutely love this movie. Uh, this is another one. I haven't seen it in, like, maybe five, six years. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't sure. I'm like, Does like, this hold up? Yeah, because I saw this at a very young age for the first time. And I was like, this is amazing. And now as an adult, I'm like... You know, is this still hold up? And yeah, it still holds up. 
Baz Luhrmann movies have a very weird consistency rate in terms of do they hold up or not, which is weird. He's only made like six movies. Yeah, he hasn't made a ton of movies. Yeah, but the movies he... For some reason, I always think of Baz Luhrmann movies as just on this side of MTV, where they're really fast and frenetic, and they're way more about energy than, than like, pure technical quality. And I've never seen Strictly Ballroom, but it seems like all his movies surround tragedy. Yeah, he's well, he's a big fan of these comedy, tragedy, like, big theatrical kind of, kind of movies and stories. And for my, okay, for my money, Moulin Rouge is probably his best movie. Yeah. And, which is weird, because he literally just made a brand new movie that was, you know, nominated for a bunch of Oscars, and it's, I'm like, it's like a 50-50 movie at best. Like, Austin <sighs> Butler's the best part of Elvis. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it falls in line with the Baz Luhrmann style, where it's very fast-paced, vibrant colors, lots of action in your face, but it's just, I don't know. I, I mean, Elvis is somebody that, I think everybody knows mm-hmm. uh, whether you've seen his movies or heard his music or not. You know they know Elvis, but this movie's different because we don't know these characters, and we kind of—it's a progression of a year, but we kind of fall in love with the characters, and we're torn apart when we see what happens to our our two leads in this movie. Yeah, it's—I got a complicated relationship with this movie because I—I'm going to open with this. I really did enjoy this movie. <laughs> this is super fun. I am legitimately convinced that this is his best movie, Baz Luhrmann's best movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a great, like, powerhouse performance from Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor. But my, my God, th- this movie is very difficult for me to, like, wrap everything around it because the story is very like by the books really simple and all the style around it is just so engaging it just yeah. makes you kind of like you gloss over a lot of the weird parts about it but we'll we'll get into that yes but to let everybody know who hasn't seen this movie i have the back of the box awesome let me get a look at this <clears throat> Christian is an idealistic writer who moves to Paris at the turn of the century and falls in love with Satine, the star of the Moulin Rouge, who has eyes on becoming a famous actress. But Satine gets her chance when a rich duke offers to put on a play starring her in exchange for her services as a lady of the night. But as Satine and Christian's love grows, they become scared of the duke and what he might do if he finds out. Culminating on the premiere of the play, their love is revealed, but their joy is short-lived as Satine dies of consumption on stage. A sicken... A si- I can't read my own handwriting. No, you can't. A sickness she has hidden from Christian to spare him the pain of knowing her fate. And in her dying wish, she asks for Christian to write their story so that their love will live forever. Aww. I mean, you also gave the ending away. The, Spoiler. This movie's 20 years old. 20, 22 years 22 old. 22 years Thank old. You. This movie's old enough to drink. Yes, it is. I, anyone out there who uh, is like angry about me spoiling movies, 90% of the movies we do were made before 2000. But talking about, you know, the Moulin Rouge. <laughs> were you saying talking about Back to the Future? I was about to say talking about Back to <laughs> the Future. I, I talk about, I talk a lot about Back to <laughs> the Future. But, um, Moulin Rouge. Yes. So, uh, I seen this movie before as a very young boy yeah uh you say you 
don't usually go back to this movie. Why why is that? Uh it's because I love this movie so much. Um I saw this at around the time that it came out. Uh so long story. I saw this movie probably in 2002. And I saw this through my older brother James cuz he also loves movies. And it was a thing where when I'd see him every other Friday at my dad's house, he would take me to Blockbuster and we'd go rent movies and video games. But how I knew a movie was really good was James would buy it on DVD. And back in those days, the DVDs were expensive. Yeah. So, you know, you really have to like a movie to buy it on DVD. So I go and I see it and I'm like, okay, like, I'll watch this. James bought it. Watch it. And it's like the absinthe scene where Christian drinks the absinthe for the first time. That was like me when I watched this movie. My mind was freaking blown. I was just like, wow, this is amazing. It made me cry. I'm like, I love this movie. And I was obsessed with this movie for years. I've noticed that this movie, the good way to describe it is like going on an absinthe trip. I've described, I think, every Baz Luhrmann movie as doing lines of pixie sticks. This is probably the most Baz Luhrmann-y movie that's ever been. <laughs> this is just downing the bottle and let's see where we go. And my God, I, I think this is like the movie that also got me into wanting to learning about filmmaking. Mm. I mean, you know, at this time there wasn't too much out there, you know, like, hey, th this is how this was made for the movie. It was before the internet, basically. Like yeah. the, internet be the internet didn't become a mainstream household thing until like a little bit deeper into like the 2000s, 2008, I think, is when YouTube took over. Yeah, so this was really the spark for me that it was like, I want to know, you know, how did they make the costumes? Um, was the elephant really a real structure in the movie? So I think that this was kind of the spark for me that kind of got me interested into movie history and filmmaking and just everything film. Good old, good old Baz Luhrmann with his movie about prostitutes and writers. And thank you to my older brother, James, that, you know, inadvertently introduced me to this movie because he didn't. I was just kind of like, ooh, this looks cool. I'm going to borrow this while he's asleep. I mean, this was, I mean, the movie came out in 2001. So this is one of the early DVD releases. I think I have, like, the early DVD release y sitting on my shelf over there. Yeah, I looked at it. That's the, the box that my brother had. Yeah, uh, my sister bought that one. Well, makes sense. Yeah, and... You know, I was 11 when I saw this for the first time. So, yeah, an 11-year-old probably shouldn't be watching this movie. I mean, it's weird because the movie's not, like, raunchy, really. No. There's, no. there's no, like, I mean, granted, there's, like, hints to drug use and all this other stuff. And, like... Prostitution. Prostitution, the king. You, you get a lot of close-ups of scantily clad <laughs> pussy in this movie. Hey, there's nothing showing... It's scantily clad. It's, it's clad, but, you know... I didn't understand, you know, some of the things that were happening in the movie, but I was able to tell, oh, she's coughing up blood, she's sick, she's hiding it from him, Christian's life's in danger. So it's like, you know, I'm able to tell all the things that were happening, but as an adult, I'm like, oh, okay. You, you understand a lot more. <laughs> understand a little bit better. Yeah, because when I was a kid, you know, my sister showed me this as well, and it was a movie that I remember watching a lot. And I think that's a thing. Musicals are very easy to show to kids because they're generally not very, like, plot-heavy. Kids are just going to remember them from the music. Yeah. And I remembered a lot of the music in this, which is all over the place. I'm, yeah. I'm just going to open with that. Like, I love the soundtrack. A lot of the numbers are great. But, my God, it is so hard to keep up with all the little musical references and all, like, the jukebox stuff going on. 
I think that might have been like apart from just the sensory sens- sensory overload. Yeah, sensory overload that it gave me as a kid, but also having music that I you know recognized from other big artists. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I do recognize that song. So it, it was just kind of fun to sit there and oh, they're about to sing again. Is it something that I know? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, we could probably sit here and make a list of all the popular songs and artists that are featured in this movie. Yeah, and that that kind of gets me to like the first thing I kind of wanted to talk about because the movie's a jukebox musical, right? Yeah. And we've you know done a couple of musicals up to this point, mm-hmm. and for the most part, they're doing original music or music that's not like pop music, yeah. but it's been used before. This is a straight up like jukebox. Like it is music that you've heard on the radio a million times that are already have a built in audience, right? Yeah, only one song on the soundtrack is original. And my question is, do you think jukebox jukebox musicals take an easy way out because they already are using pre-made music that the audience already has a connection to and that they're just kind of writing off of that preconceived built-in emotional connection? Or are they genius for trying to use that? Like, do you think this is a good use of the jukebox musical or a bad use of it? I think it's genius and it's even harder because the world has so many songs and, you know, everybody loves different types of songs and whoever's on this cast and crew, you know, I'm sure they probably came in with, ooh, well, I love this song, you know, pulling all these songs into this movie, but it makes it that much more difficult, you know, huh, would this work in that scene or is that going to sound ridiculous? So I think it kind of goes to the genius of narrowing the list down and using iconic songs and thinking, yeah, I can't imagine this scene without this piece of music. I I see your point. The thing that rubs against that for me is, I mean, there's somewhere Christian is just referencing single lines, like when they're in the um, elephant. Yeah. And he's like, Come on, I was made for loving you, baby. Yeah, you know, all you need is love. Yeah, the Beatles. Yeah, and he's and he shoots out like fifteen one-liners until it ends with him singing Whitney Houston. Yeah, and I'm like, what? What the? <laughs> what the fuck is it? Because he shoots out like all these references, and I can only keep up with like so many. And I'm like, well, that's oh lord, that's part of his character. He's you know this penniless English writer that's there in Paris. He wants to be inspired because he loves love. But that's his genius is that he's kind of the guy that comes up with these great, like, leading songs that we have today. And it's just kind of like, oh, no, I, I don't like that line. But it's like, no, it's a banger now and it's been a banger through history. But he's just kind of like this guy that is able to throw, like, the top, you know, 100 songs. And they're like, oh, that does sound kind of good, you know. Let's run with it. I think that is interesting because that is going in with christian's character yeah where he's supposed to be you know oh he's the penniless writer but all the bohemians are like no this kid's a fucking genius yeah and that's because he is so forward thinking all those mm-hmm. lo- all the silly love songs he's singing mm-hmm. are songs that are so like far ahead of when this is taking place this takes place in like 1899 1900 yeah, yeah. And all the music we're hearing in the movie is from, like, the latter half of the 20th century. They're, mm-hmm. Most of them are from 1960 up. Yeah. And, you know, you got Bowie in there, Queen in there. Um, Ozzy Osbourne has a has a cameo in he this of all things. He does have a cameo. We yeah. have Kylie Minogue in there. Yeah, and, like, it, it is we just... We have Nirvana. We do have Nirvana. And it's, it's one of those things where the jukebox musical... As a concept, I'm usually not a fan of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's just because I've seen 
some jukebox musicals done pretty poorly. I'm not a huge fan of um, Kenneth Branagh's. Uh, what is it? Love Labor's Lost. Is that is that it? I can't I can't remember wh- which one it is. But he did a jukebox musical of a Shakespeare play during the Spanish Civil War. Matthew Lillard's in it of all things. It's I don't think re- I've seen that. It's really weird, and it's probably because he's fusing Shakespeare and show tunes together that yeah. I find it so awkward. But this is one of those instances where I really like it, and I think it's because it's mashing up so well. And it and it's also Baz Luhrmann's using songs about the most written about thing in all of musical history. Yeah, love. Because all you need is love. Love truth beauty freedom you know all, all the things that the bohemians believe love lift us up where we belong exactly eagles fly mountain high yeah you know the hills are alive with the sound of music and you see we got that tie into the sound of music from earlier this month we did we also got the um literal a uh, literal visual reference to singing in the rain when you mcgregor's on the uh, eiffel tower or the, you know the literal copycat of diamonds are a girl's best friend fused with material girls by Madonna. yes which i uh, Obvious mashups are obvious mashups, but I mean, hey. But yeah, the jukebox musical here, it, it does function well, and I do like it. I think I think what's really make it, makes it work for me is the energy here, mm-hmm. because you can tell everyone is having a good time. Yeah. I mean, John Leguizamo is chewing the scenery like only a veteran ham could. I mean, he's also one of, you know, the actual real characters in the movie because there was a real Toulouse-Lautrec mm. in, you know, French history. And um, Harry Zidler was Charles Zidler, who, you know, did run the, the Moulin Rouge. And he was kind of the spearhead of, you know, let's set this place up in light so it shines out. And, you know, we have, you know, basically this party atmosphere for the rich and the powerful, but it's really uh, risque. Yeah, well, I mean, I, the actual Moulin Rouge, it was like this, like, burlesque, can-can dance mm-hmm. hall, whatever, but it was also like a brothel. Yeah. Like that, in in the movie, that's the whole, like, Satine character, mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman's character, yeah. where she is this, you know, she wants to be this star, she wants to be, you know, big, famous, she's, she's the star of the Moulin Rouge, right, yes. where everybody fawns over her, you know, men want to be with her, women want to be her. Yes. But at the end of it, you know, she's, like, she's very well aware that, like, what she is, you know. She's a courtesan. She's a courtesan, which is a fancy way of saying uh, Lady of the Night. Lady of the Night, um, you know, I am not in this for love. I am in this to kind of, you know, make my way to become a star. And she's one of these stars that, you know, it's a short-lived dream because she's sick with consumption or tuberculosis. Yeah, and... Uh, do we want to talk let's talk about Nicole Kidman here because she was yeah. nominated for an Oscar yes well, the movie was nominated for eight Oscars yeah and Nicole Kidman she was like the only acting nomination for the whole film yeah and what about her performance do you think swayed the critics and everybody because I'll be honest with you when she's first uh like meeting Christian and she's like Oh, ravish me. And she starts flailing her arms around <laughs> yeah. like a like Woody Woodpecker. And well, a, she does that for the Duke. She does that for the Duke, too. But she, Or when she's rolling around on the ground right before mm-hmm. Hugh McGregor starts singing your song. Yeah. And it's like, she is going wild oh, in this yeah. fucking movie. And I'm like, what, what are the merits of her 
performance that you really like honed in on that you really liked? Just the complexity of her character because, you know, yeah, she could just give into this, you know, I make a ton of money off of making men believe that I actually care when I don't. And I have zero fucks about it because I got the pay and I don't have to worry about these guys ever again. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, she's able to kind of snap back and forth between being this show woman, but also, you know, having goals and aspirations to be a star. And she's got the talent. She's got the singing voice. She can dance. She can act. And I think that's, you know, what give her the, the cred that she ultimately gets for being nominated for the Oscar. Because, I mean... It's not just her being a show person the entire time. It's the complexity of, oh, she's actually falling in love for the first time and she can't even enjoy that because she's got this deal with the Duke. So she's got to conceal this love and, oh, wait, I'm sick on top of that and it's a fatal disease. So it's like, what do I do? Do I tell this person I love that I'm dying or do I just, you know, try to live out the rest of my days happy with this person? The short-lived days the short-lived days because yeah you know tuberculosis uh was no joke back then it would take people i don't know how fast it would take people out back then but Som- sometimes it would take a long long time like years like doc holiday that's why he moved to um tombstone arizona because mm. he was dying of tuberculosis and dry weather yeah. helps it but um yeah it's really interesting her character like the satine character because yeah there is a lot of complexity there because she is this person who's very like anti falling in love and then she falls in love kind of immediately as soon as Christian starts singing your song. Well, for pacing of the movie, you gotta fall in love fast. It can't be a slow burn, you know, oh I do love him. It's like, nope, fall in love, dance number, dance number. Yeah, I see, okay, that's something about the movie that I, I do have issue with. Because I already I already stated the energy of the movie is why I think it works and why I love it. But my god, the pacing of this movie is neck-snappingly fast, and then it screeches to halts, and then it's jumping between certain cuts every, like, literal seconds. And it's... The movie is is flabbergastingly all over the place. I am impressed that it works as well as it does. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm kind of wondering your thoughts on that. Like, the Baz Luhrmann directing style, right? Yeah. Of, we'll just, we'll shoot a shit ton of footage, we'll figure it out, as long as we keep the energy high and the editing quick. What, what are your thoughts on that, like, style? I mean, for this movie, it's enjoyable. I mean, I like fast-paced movies. I, you know, I'm kind of notorious that I don't like, you know, the real slow-paced movies that you enjoy, where it's just like... We're pulling teeth here, just trying to get to the next scene or, you know, when we get action. We have different opinions on Once Upon a Time in America, yes. Good movie, it's just, man, it's a long movie, but hindsight... You you do not want to see the six-hour cut of that movie. I don't. I would kill for the six-hour cut of that movie. I don't want to see the six-hour cut, but then again, thinking of, what is it, the four-hour cut that we have? Yes, the four-hour cut's the one we have. I can't imagine anything being cut out of that movie. So it's one of those things where, wow, this is a really long movie, but I love every second of it. Versus this movie where it's a very fast-paced movie and I love every second of it. But I mean, it kind of goes with, you know, the topic and the themes and, you know, we're entering 1899 Paris, Moulin Rouge, Can Can Dancers. It's a very fast lifestyle. There's a lot of drinking, there's drug use. So yeah, we kind of have to feel like, you know, everything's kind of a blur. I get that. 
in other Lerman movies, Romeo and Juliet, and to some extent Elvis. Gatsby. Gatsby. Some of that editing style doesn't always work. Like, I think in Romeo and Juliet, because it's so stylized, it works most of the time. And in Elvis, because, like, the musical sequences, that makes sense Mm -hmm. for. But it's when he's doing in, like, slower moments that are really weird. In this, I think... I think this is why I really think this is his better movie, one of his better movies, is because it kind of crosses in that perfect line where the subject matter is exactly his style. Yeah. And everything else kind of falls into that. I think, because is this his blank check movie? Is this the movie that his that was probably his, like, auteurist vision? Because he does, before this, he does Romeo and Juliet, which is basically his, like, Hey guys, Hollywood's giving me a shot. Let I'm gonna do a tried and true Shakespeare thing to show everybody I can make some money. That and I'm not sure if this comes before Strictly Ballroom or if Strictly Ballroom came before this. Strictly Ballroom was his first movie. It was okay. his first movie in Australia, <laughs> and it was a very low budget movie. If you watch it, it, you can tell it's like him working with a lot, a lot less money than he'll get in the rest of his career. Okay, yeah. So I mean, I guess this could possibly be his blank check because. Romeo and Juliet. That was a big movie. Yeah. And then this was made in 99 with a 2001 release. So yeah, this could be the blank check. Um, I know it was really hard for him to sell this movie. Because he was just like, I've got this idea for this, you know, over-the-top musical that's set in 1899 France at the Moulin Rouge. And it was sent, uh, 20th Century Fox. So it was kind of like, all right, we'll take the bait. And, yeah, I mean, this movie took over 192 days to make. Yeah, and also, I'd imagine a lot of its budget, because this movie cost a lot of money. Or, it didn't cost that much money, it was a $50 million movie. $50 million movie, and its worldwide gross was $185 million. Yeah, so really good return. Really good return. But uh, I'd imagine most of that budget went to getting rights to a lot of this music. Yeah, I mean, there were some that... Uh, absolutely refused like cat stevens he refused to give his music rolling stones declined courtney love almost took back nirvana it smells like teen spirit mm-hmm. because he wanted marilyn Man- manson to do a rendition and courtney love i guess had like beef with manson at the time yeah so they're they're like okay we'll drop manson and we'll have you know some other unknown artist you know perform the song uh they wanted my way by frank sinatra and he refused but he got it in the movie at the very end where uh, the Duke, he's screaming my way when he has the gun oh, at the performance. Okay. So that was Baz Luhrmann's way of like, well, I couldn't get the song, but I'm still going to get my way in the movie. He's like, I can get the line in. You don't yeah. trademark the line. Yeah. It's And it is just kind of in- interesting that the movie's almost a fucking miracle. It, it oh, As yeah. good as it is and it's made the way it is. Because it's, it's not just entirely green screens. It's, you know, one six scale models. It is just so many things that are happening. For those of you born post 2008 when CGI was, was solved. Yeah. If you want to see something and understand what we thought was amazing CGI back in the day, watch Moulin Rouge. The, the opening landscape mm-hmm. of Paris is a PlayStation 2 game. Yeah. It is wild yes because i love the lord of the rings movies and i go back and watch them mm-hmm. like kind of often and the cgi in that for the most part like 90 percent of it holds up really really well like that like it's like quality enough to where i'm like if you put this in the theater it would it would still play mm-hmm. Moulin Rouge ain't like that 
some of some parts of Moulin Rouge, I'm like, oh, when they're going into Christian's like apartment, and I'm like, I could literally like see the seam of where the real set and the green screen like slide into each other. It is, ooh, that is some ru- that this movie shows a little bit of its age. I, I'm just oh, gonna like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, things were still being, you know, thought out. Things were technology was being created, but at the time. Oh, at the time it works, yeah. Yeah, at the time it works. I mean, now we're able to see, like, oh, okay, I can see how this would be modified and fixed in today's films. But, I mean, this movie, you know, has a lot of feats to it, just like uh, the elephant, Satine's elephant apartment that she lives in. Uh, That was a real structure built for the movie. It was 60 feet tall. So it's just, and it is authentic to the actual Moulin Rouge's history in Paris, where it was in the little uh, garden that sat out in front of the actual theater, and it was an opium den. Again, it, it's Paris in the turn of the century. <laughs> yeah, so this was also a whorehouse. People like no people forget this. Yeah, so you know it's just a thing where you know it was good that they kind of you know researched the history and made it as historically accurate as they could for a fantasy film. Historically accurate. I mean, build, building wise. I sure yeah, building wise. We'll we'll put it like that. Go on, spew. I know you're going to spew. Boo, I'm not going to spew about this being a not historically accurate movie. One of, my, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when they do a tango to Roxanne. Yeah. Which is, by okay, by the, by the way, okay, Roxanne is the best scene in this movie. I agree. By far. Yeah. Best musical number. Yeah. It is so good. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Oh no! It, that that's just it. It's it's great. It's a perfect fusing of like music, story, the emotion, the tone, everything, and the cross cutting. There's confidence in that direction there, and that's where I'm like, okay, yeah, Baz Luhrmann's a fucking genius. This movie switches from I don't know if this man can make a, a coherent movie to this man is a goddamn cinematic genius. Well, I mean, you know, there was a lot of things that happened during the making of this movie because it was. Over a almost over a year that it took them to make the movie, um, Nicole Kidman she faced two injuries while making the movie. She broke her rib. Yeah, she fractured ribs. Uh, no, she she bro- I know she broke one of her ribs when she fell off the like swing for her opening number, Gentleman or Diamonds. Uh, are Diamonds are girl's, girl's best friend. friend. Yeah, she fell out of her swing for that one. And yeah. I know she broke her rib there. Yeah, uh, it was either a broken rib or she fractured a rib. But then she broke her ankle coming down the stairs and her heels. And she went on to perform. And a couple of days later, she was like, you know, I thought maybe after a couple of days and some, you know, ibuprofen. No, she ended up needing surgery on her ankle because so I'm like, damn, you know, she got injured two times on the set. Uh, Baz Luhrmann's dad died during the making of this movie. So they had to pause production for that. They paused production for Nicole Kidman for two weeks. So this movie, you know, kind of had its shaky moments uh they were running late on time because of all these delays that it actually impacted almost impacted the filming of attack of the clones starring ewan mcgregor yes because this movie was shot on the same exact set as attack of the clones which is just what that okay that sucks for ewan mcgregor because if you watch attack of the clones he's in a lot of it oh, it's yeah. not like uh oh he's in like you know the 20 30 minutes he's in like most of the goddamn movie yeah and Ewan McGregor has a very weird career trajectory that leads him up to this mm-hmm. because he gets like train spotting. Then he does like the first Star Wars movie and then mm-hmm. he's doing Moulin Rouge. Yeah. And I'm like, 
that is a very weird trajectory, right? He starts off doing, like, little indie movies mm-hmm. in, like, England. And then he's like, I am now Obi-Wan Kenobi in the biggest film franchise of all fucking time. Yeah. And I'm going to follow that up by doing a big jukebox musical that's hopefully it'll all make sense at the end. And it's the range of Ewan McGregor, I guess, is what I want to talk about. Because he has a huge range in this. (laughs) Idealistic, like, nitwit, lovesick puppy to tragically destroyed man. But I want to redact uh, Nicole Nicole Kidman's injuries. So she fractured two of her ribs and she injured her knee. Oh, okay. And because of the injuries that she sustained in this movie, that meant she, that she couldn't do Panic Room. And that's why Jodie Foster got the role. Oh, wait, she was up for Panic Room? She was going to be in Panic Room after she filmed uh, Moulin Rouge, but all the injuries that she sustained, she had to opt out of it because she needed recovery time after this movie was completed. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. Well, actually, now that I think about it, she's just coming off of Eyes Wide Shut when she's coming when she's coming into Moulin Rouge, and right? And she's also going through the divorce with Tom Cruise. Mmm, that's... Wow, she had a, she had a rough, uh, rough time leading up to this. And the critics were really rough on her where they thought, you know, hey, uh, oh, her, her marriage failed, so what about her career? Is it going to hit the skids? And I was like, no, she does Moulin Rouge and knocks it out of the park. She's like, Kidman always winning back on top. She's like, this is Nicole fucking Kidman. Of course she's got this. But yeah, we, we got to talk about Christian because, uh, I mean. Emotional core of the movie. Emotional core of the movie. And that's where most of the attention goes, just the range of Christian. And that's why I kind of wanted to talk about Satine early because she also has her, you know, her peaks and valleys as a character too, where it's just like, yeah, you know, she hits some major things in this movie. But because Christian is, you know, this innocent character that moves to Paris and it's just... Our audience surrogate. Yeah, so it's like we're able to empathize with him. But yeah, Ewan McGregor, tons of range. Yeah, and like his biggest asset here is that he's just... He's one of those actors that's just naturally charming. Yes. Like he's in something and you just... Like the audience goes in and they're like, no, I'm I'm in. Like he seems mm-hmm. like... Like the nice guy, like I'm, I can completely invest in him as the hero, as you know, the the love interest, as this or that or whatever. Like I'm, I don't know if I've ever seen Ewan McGregor play a villain or a bad guy. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Um, Not to my knowledge that I have either. So I, I mean, mean would, he could have, yeah. I but it'd be a thing where I'm like, I don't. That's like it was it, it, it to me. It'd be the same thing as like seeing Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West, where I'm like. Wait, that's the guy from 12 Angry Men, you know, the hero in all the movies, yeah. the original Tom Hanks, and now he's like this bloodthirsty killer. Like, that's the thing. Like, Ewan McGregor as an actor, to me, always comes off as the most, like, charming, good-natured person in the film, which is weird. Like, that's a weird type to line yourself up with. Yeah, and I mean, we see that more as the film progresses and when Satine figures out that she's sick because... Harry Zidler and Marie, they're hiding that, you know, she has this, you know... <sighs> okay, yeah, Zidler is is the bad guy in this movie. Zidler's evil. No, but, yeah, but what I'm trying to get at is that, you know, we have Christian that's innocent and, you know, Satine figures out that she's sick and that this, you know, romance isn't going to work out. And Zidler has that line where he says, you know, we're children of the underworld. He doesn't understand because Christian is this innocent. He comes in and he adopts the bohemian lifestyle. But at the end of the day, he's still um, 
good. Yeah, and it's... Okay. Um, the whole story almost falls into this idea of a man crawls into hell to to pull the love of his life out. It's mm-hmm. like that old story of, like, um... What's that Greek uh, story? Like, uh, her... Hercules? When, no, when no. he pulls Meg out of, uh... Well, okay, yeah, I guess. We'll go with the Disney one. But yeah, that's the thing, like, Christian comes in, you know, for God's sake, his name is Christian, goes into this underworld seedy underbelly, you know, the Moulin Rouge, and finds Satine, this, like, angelic, um, lady who is trapped in this cycle of a pretty, like, fucked up world, yeah. and Ziggler, or Ziddler, Ziddler, he's not a good guy, like, he is, co- he is basically selling Satine to the Duke for, mm-hmm. like, to fix up the Moulin Rouge and all this other stuff. And he is a very, he's a complicated character. Because you feel for him that, okay, you're, you're, you know, funny, you're charming, you're like a nice comedic relief. You know, you're played by, you know, Jim Broadbent, so you're just mm-hmm. naturally this, this, like, big, bright, happy dude. But a lot of his actions, to me, come off as him... Almost setting up Satine to just die on stage. Because yeah, there's a he... lot of points where he could just pull the plug and just yeah. tell the Duke go fuck himself. Yeah. And it's just, you know, you got this. We're not going to tell you that basically your life's ending and you could decide, hmm, maybe I'm going to retire and live the rest of my life happy doing what I want to do. It's, no, got to get you back on stage. Oh, you want to be a star? All right, you know, l- let's do this. Let's get this production done so, you know, you can go off and be a star when I know you're not going to make it. Yeah, and I mean, like, I kind of get it, because the Duke, the all the Duke wants is for Satine to, like, be his, like, lady, be his mistress, right? Yeah. And the Duke owns the, like, gets the deed to the Moulin Rouge, and if things go bad, he's just going to, like, you know, bulldoze the place, right? Yeah. But it's like, Ziddler, Ziddler knows what's what's up. Mm-hmm. He's, his, he already has the foregone conclusion of, oh, yeah, Satine's just going to, you know, kick the bucket, kick the bucket, or she's going to bang this guy, kick the bucket, I'll be up X number of dollars, whatever. Like, and like the, Greek, the Greek tragedy you were thinking was Orpheus and Eurydice. That, thank you. And the thing is, is like, I kind of, I kind of feel for him because he's so charming, but his actions make him seem like a, he's a bigger villain to me than the Duke is. The Duke's just petty. Ziddler's malicious. Well, I mean, the Duke's not just petty. Dude has some serious issues to him. Yes. I mean, you know, he's got basically his bodyguard, who he refers to as his manservant. I don't know if that's a thing with, you know, phrasing back in the 1800s, if that's what they would call him instead of, you know... Because I know in some regards they would call them, you know, my man. You know, he, you know, he does... man, Man, that's literally what it is. He's my servant. He's my manservant. He's... Basically, he's like a bodyguard and a butler and an, an assistant. Like, that's generally what that term meant. Uh, yeah. But for the Duke, I feel that he's worse than Ziddler because he truly believes that he can buy people. He bu- Part of this, you know, I'm getting the deed to the Moulin Rouge, but also my funding that I'm giving you to the show means that I am buying Satine. She is mine without her consent. Well, yeah, but Satine up to this point, to the Duke's knowledge, she's, she sells herself for money. Yeah, and but it's just the, the thing where he thinks that he can buy everything, you know. Well, I can, you know, I can afford to have you killed. I can afford to tear down your theater. I can afford to buy your best star and make her my woman until I'm done with her. 
and like don't get me wrong the duke's a scumbag mm-hmm. he's he's an objectively evil person the thing is is the duke up front we know is the bad guy yeah the way that richard roxburgh is playing him <laughs> with his weird nasally mm-hmm. evil voice yeah we know he mm-hmm. the minute he opens his mouth you knew he was the bad guy right yeah. Yeah. with the literal mustache mm-hmm. twirl bad guy Zidler, on the other hand, I think he is the he's the undercover bad guy. Yeah. He's the bad guy that if you just look a little bit under the love that Satine has for him as like this kind of mentor father figure, mm-hmm. under him being like trying to keep this romance going like stuff, he's a, he's not a good guy. He's not. And it's like you could see that he actually loves and cares about Satine because who knows how long she's been working for him. But he never, you know, takes that step where I've got to put her physical needs first. She's dying. She's sick. We need to take care of her. And it's always, I feel terrible that we're going to lose her, but she's got to go to work. Yeah. And for Zidler, his whole thing is the show must go on, right? Exactly. He has his whole musical number based around it. Which is a great number. It's a strong number. Oh, yeah. It's always good when they bust out some queen. But the thing is... He only gets his redemptive moment when he punches out the Duke at the end. At the very end. Very, very end. And the thing is, you know, oh, he punches out the Duke who tried to run the stage with a gun. And I love how it just kind of like cuts a little bit. And then you just see the Duke just sadly walking out. In the of, snow. Of the, yeah, of the theater into the snow. And I'm like, you were about to fucking cap a bitch. And you're just like, well, I guess I've lost now. Well, I, I shall trot off into the snow away from these vile, you know, heathens or whatever, and, you know, just close it down. But it's it's so weird to me that they decided to keep that shot in, because if you just punched him out, I'm like, okay, yeah, he's unconscious for the rest of it, that makes sense. Yeah. But him walking away, I'm like, oh, he gave up that easy? You were ready well, to yeah. cap a bitch a minute ago. Well, he also doesn't have um his bodyguard, because he gets knocked out by, you know, one of the sandbags from the, the show, so he's out, so, yeah, what else is he gonna do? Yeah. Walk home in the snow, looking like a loser. <laughs> like a loser. Because he is a big loser. See you again in Van Helsing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's Dra- yeah. He's Dracula in Van Helsing. Yeah, I'm trying to think. That might have been the next movie after after this one. Yeah, might might have been. I don't know. He is a very weird actor because he's in a lot of like movies of this era. Mm-hmm. But I have I don't think I've seen him recently and stuff. I again I'd have to go and look at an IMDb yeah. and all that stuff. But watching the the movie and that vibe that's going on because the movie feels a lot darker and dirtier now than i'm watching it as an adult because mm-hmm. as a kid it's like oh big bright shiny colors oh it's so much fun yeah as an adult i'm like man there's a layer of just sadness sadness and tragedy and scumminess and like like anger in a lot mm-hmm. of the undertones of this movie like there's a whole section of christian just being so jealous of satine and I love the whole... The, I think the reason I love the Roxanne number in this is because it points out this thing, right? It's yeah. like, you fell in love with a with a prostitute. Mm-hmm. A woman who sells her, you know, her, her body, body to, to the, the night. night, you know? She put on the red dress, and it's like, Christian, like, buddy, you know, the uh, unconscious Argentinian, yeah. which definitely goes up into our... Uh, um, credits a hall of fame with i'm okay guy yeah and and he's like in argentina we know this song when a man falls in love with a prostitute and knows that love cannot be true because he will always become jealous and he does the whole dance and tango and it 
It's great. It's oh, fucking marvelous. Yeah, and that I, song I fits so that. good. It, it does. And I mean, you know, with this movie, seeing it as an adult and being able to see really what is happening and what the movie's trying to tell you. I mean, just alone in his uh, monologue before he breaks off into Roxanne, without trust, there is no love. And it's, you know, this movie's trying to tell you these things. And it's like, yeah, you know, Christine and uh, Christian and Satine, you know, love each other. But because she's in this deceptive world, you know, he's kind of like, maybe I can't really trust you, blindly trust you like I was before, because you could be deceiving me. And this whole number stems off the fact that she's going to go and sleep with the Duke. Like, that's the intention of the night. To save everybody else's jobs, because he's ready to tear apart the Moulin Rouge. He's going to displace all these people that have worked here for years. So she's doing this for the greater good, even though he's evil. And Christian, being this lovesick guy Mm -hmm. that doesn't have this worldly bohemian yada yada, he's... He's jealous. And that's where you get the darkness of it. Like, oh my god. One of the hardest, like, heartbreak moments of the movie is when they finally have the show and, like, it, the curtains open up and he's standing there and he's like, it's okay. I've paid my whore and throws the money at her and walks off. And And that's just... Heartbreak moment. Heartbreak, but it's also, you know, just to show how strong an actor Ewan McGregor is because his voice breaking when he says that, it's not, you know... You know, he's angry, you know, I've paid my whore, you know, it's, you know, I've paid my whore and, um, what does he say? Thank you for curing me for my uh, obs- ridiculous obsession with love. And he's just completely breaking as he says those lines. And it's like, he's truly devastated and heartbroken. This is not a man that, you know, oh, you've wasted, you know, a year of my life. This is, you he's know. He's not angry about it. He's, he's sad. He's heartbroken. And that's the thing. The movie's whole, the whole theme, push, thrust, thematic elements of the movie are all based around love. Yeah. And just big capital love. That's yeah. what the movie's all about. It's about love. Good love, bad love, happy love, sad love. And the crux, the whole story of the movie is it, like that ending. I love that ending because he's like, I pay my whore, runs off, and then she like sings out to him and... Mm-hmm. She sings, like, their song, yeah. and then he's like, I, you know, god damn it, Satine, I just can't quit you. And they just go, <laughs> and they just go back, and they have their big musical number. It's a big fucking Bollywood-esque musical number. And the, and then she dies, and then he writes that love song, that love story about them. And I love that, because this isn't a love conquers all, oh, happy no. ending. It's a, it's better to have loved than lost than to have never loved at all. Yeah. And that's such a more poignant thing. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Harold and Maude, mm-hmm. where, you know, it, it basically, actually, wait a minute, fucking Baz Luhrmann owes somebody some fucking money. It's the same ending. <laughs> oh no, we're going to talk about Harold and Maude now. It's, it, that movie's a masterpiece. But it's, it is kind of the same ending, right? You know, Maude's got a, Maude's dying and Harold's like, please don't go. And she's like, just go and love some more. Yeah. Because... It's better to have had this love and experience and the heartbreak of losing somebody than to have never had it at all. Because yeah. that... Out that, of fear. Yeah. Out that, of fear of, you know, you're either going to leave me or, you know, really leave me in a physical sense. And, you know, that's why at the end when, she, you know, they're saying goodbye to each other and she tells him, you know, I'm always going to be with you. And it's like, yeah, you know, you can't physically see her. She's not there. 
but she will be with you. And it's just kind of... Write our story so our love can live forever. Yeah, and then I love that the entire movie is basically Christian writing their story, and we see him become clearer and clearer as the story comes to a conclusion. We see him, you know, go from where he's just a recluse in his room, he's drinking to, you know, where he comes a little bit, you know, a little bit more fresh at the end. And it's kind he of starts like, his old Hemingway and works his way to young Hemingway. Yeah, you know, it's this thing where you see him more or less starting to heal. He's not, you know, right in the middle of grief. He's working through the grief to kind of get to the next chapter. Actually, that is an interesting way to look at it as a movie about grief. Because that's probably on Baz Luhrmann's mind. You know, he loses his father yeah. during this. And the idea of grief and that connection, that's that's got to be in the forefront of what's going on here. I mean, I what I thought was interesting was I watched um, one of the many documentaries about the making of this movie. I was watching that and trying to pick up things that I didn't know about the movie. And... In one of the original scenes, they're they're playing out like the computer computer animation of how they go into his room and we find him sitting on the floor with a wine bottle. And on the walls, they have like Satine's pictures and the sitar from the play. So it's kind of like this shrine that he's built in his room. And they redid it to make it look like it's just, you know, he's just existing in this place. So it's kind of like, okay, that's cool to see the difference. But at the end of the movie, when we pan into his room as he's typing and he's got the hat on and the shirt on, I didn't notice that Satine's bird is sitting outside of his apartment. The little bird in the cage. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, so he does have, I mean, probably has more things from her, but it's like, he's got her bird. So it's like, she still is there with him. And we're finally seeing him, you know, kind of coming to a resolve where it's like, I'm ready to move on to the next part of grief. Okay, I have a question, and it's, and it's kind of rounded into that. Okay. And going back to the Satine character, because, again, Nicole Kimmon does a great job on this movie. Oh, yeah. But do you think Satine as a character did the right thing by not, by basically keeping Christian in the dark? Not telling her, <sighs> not telling him the truth, not only about, like, she's like, I'm, I'm gonna have to do it. If I don't sleep with the Duke, he's gonna basically kill you, run out the Moulin Rouge, ruin everybody. Yeah. It's like, can you take one for the team? Or she doesn't well, tell him that well, she, I'm gonna die. Well, she doesn't know that Christian's gonna be killed. She, she figures that out when she goes to pack up her things so the two of them could run away. This is before that. Well, does she... And the other thing is, when she's packing up and she finds out she's gonna die, why doesn't she tell Christian that? Yeah, I, I think that that's probably... You know, a lot of the characters in the movie, they, they make a lot of mistakes. And yeah, I think that she should have been honest with him. I mean, granted, Zidler wasn't honest with her in telling her, you know, hey, you really are more sick than than you think you are. So it's this thing of, you know, she was lied to and then she lied to protect Christian. But it's like Romeo and Juliet. If they had, you know, just said, hey, I'm planning on doing this. I'm not really dead. You know, don't kill yourself. Romeo and Juliet solved immediately if they could just text each other. Exactly. And that's why in this movie, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, uh, oh, I'm not going to show up tonight. Uh, they found out about us. BRB. See you, you know, tomorrow. But it's just, you know, you know, hindsight, you know, technology wasn't, you know, added back then. But yeah, I feel like if there had been more honesty between the two of them. But then again, I could see why she was lying about her consumption because she doesn't want them to feel like they're on borrowed time. And she probably doesn't want to, you know, be in that mentality of, I only have so much time left. 
I'm basically a ticking time bomb before I'm completely gone. I wonder if it's a thing where she almost does it out of love. Here's here's, here's my, my okay. theory here, right? I'm wondering if Satine's logic is, I would rather you hate me than lose me, right? Because if I break it off and then it's like, this was never real, mm-hmm. he could be like, oh, you bitch, I hate you. And exactly. Just, and leave and just like, dip, different mindset and leave. Instead of being like, I love you, I will always love you, but I'm dead tomorrow. And then he has to live with that pain and grief. And being completely is... destroyed for the rest of his life. And that's what we end up getting. Mm-hmm. And then you see him kind of like bloom out of it by telling this story again. Mm-hmm. And I, God damn, the movie, the movie works. Yeah. Which is so fucking fascinating. On a technical level, the movie is messy as hell. It's all over the place. It is, it is, um... ADD on on fucking cocaine. I mean, considering, you know, his life was in jeopardy and if he had been killed that night, they both would have died together. They could have been together and it's just to go with tragedy. No. One needs to stay alive so that we could feel the heartbreak and just the you know, the yearning for that other partner that's gone forever. And that right there, the the emotional core of the movie, the themes, the the tone, the energy that works. It, it's a, mm, again, I, th- I think I might have said it earlier. At both times, this movie is an absolute mess and an absolute masterpiece at the same fucking time. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I really did enjoy Moulin Rouge. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's one of those movies where I can't watch it as often as I used to. I mean, I probably burned out the VHS tape I had, the soundtracks that I had, um, Listening to, you know, Pink, Christina Aguilera, you know, just, just banging out <laughs> Fulibu Kushaf uh, and Moi. That, is a, that, is, a, that is a banger of a song. Yeah, uh, I I didn't remember a lot of the movie. Uh, and then I was like, oh, I remember that song. Oh, yeah. And I looked up the music video. Yeah, the 2000s were a different time, people. Oh, yeah. Different time. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good music video. Maya was in it. Missy Elliott's in it. Lil Kim's in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. Um, we were talking about Ozzy Osbourne in the, be- the beginning of this episode. Yes, he has a cameo in it. And everyone, before you take a shot as to how he cameos in the movie, I want you to just, I don't know, write it down on a piece of paper, write it in the comments, do something. Because we're about to tell you what it is. I guarantee you're not going to get it off the top of your head. Okay, what is his cameo? So, originally, the Green Fairy, played by Kylie Minogue, was supposed to be this long-haired muscle dude that plays a giant sitar, and Ozzy Osbourne was going to be the vocals for this guy. And they decided, well, let's go with, like, this Tinkerbell from Hell character, because, yeah, if you're drinking alcohol, ooh, you know, I see this beautiful woman, and she looks like Tinkerbell, but she's really a fairy from Hell. So as, you know, she's singing The Hills Are Alive with the Sound of Music, and we go into that basically Christian falling into the Moulin Rouge, as she does that scream, it's actually her scream fusing in with Ozzy Osbourne's scream. So it's kind of like this crazy train kind of tie-in. And it's like, fuck yeah, Ozzy Osbourne. And I thought I knew everything about this movie. I'm like, Ozzy Osbourne? Really? <laughs> like, okay, like, this is awesome. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, that was Boo's trivia fact of the day. That actually wasn't my trivia fact of the day. Well, you better get it to us. We're almost an hour in. I know. My real trivia fact of the day was Ewan McGregor, do you want to guess who they considered to be Christian? I, I already know because I, I did my due diligence too. Did you? I did. I know there was uh, talks of 
one actor who went on to play the Joker and one actor who went on to play the P- Prince of Persia. That's right. Heath Ledger auditioned to be Christian, and Baz Luhrmann thought he was too young at the time to be, you know, this romantic lead to Satine. And after that, Heath Ledger was pissed. So once uh, Baz Luhrmann went back to do Australia, the movie that came out, I think, in the late... It was like 2008. 2008, somewhere in there. uh, He offered the role to Heath Ledger, and he was like, absolutely not. He's like, you rejected me for Moulin Rouge. So I just thought it was this funny thing that, you know, we possibly could have gotten Heath Ledger in this movie, who's a phenomenal actor as well. Um, I know they had wanted Catherine Zeta-Jones to possibly be Satine. Satine. Uh, they so, also wanted Jake Gyllenhaal to try and be Christian. Christian. Apparently his singing voice was phenomenal, but they I think it was a thing they couldn't get him and, like, Nicole Kidman to work on screen together. Mm-hmm. I think that might have been the issue there. Because yeah. he, he was also, like, a little younger at the time. Yeah. But, yeah, that that is my Boo trivia fact. I think the casting was perfect for this movie. Ewan McGregor and uh, Nicole Kidman, they just work so well together. Again, every time I see one of these, like, really good, like, on-screen pairings, I'm like, how do they not do another movie together? That always seems weird to me. Because, granted, this isn't like, you know, the 1930s, you know, where it's like, oh, we'll have... You tie these two actors together and they're, you know, the romantic leads and, you know, a series of movies. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, we're going to make seven movies with this. Like, I, I get why not. Like, the last time they did that was Ben Affleck. Or not, is Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie were in a few movies together and or, that didn't work out. Or Ryan Gosling and um, Emma Stone. You know, they've got great chemistry together and they've been romantic leads in, like, I think at least three movies together. Mm-hmm. We don't have that, you know, more or less in this day of age. But yeah, I think that the two of them have really great chemistry together and it shows in this movie. But that brings us to the end of the Can 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 at the Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Final thought. I love this movie. I give it two strong thumbs up. If you want a good time that's going to break your heart in the end, highly recommend you watch it. I cannot agree more. Two big thumbs up. It It is a movie that is so good despite its shortcomings that you you just ride the ride. That is the Baz Luhrmann's um, directing style. Bro, just ride the ride. It's going to be fun. And that's how his movies feel. You feel like you were on a roller coaster. And the end of the roller coaster, you're going to be in tears. But next week, hopefully, our audience is not in tears. Because what are we doing next week? Well, speaking of tears, next week is our bonus episode. And we're going to be talking about one of, another one of my favorite movies. A movie that doesn't get talked about that often. It is a true cult classic. We're going to be talking about Crybaby. Yes, from the... One of the elder statesmen of cult classics, John Waters, directing Johnny Depp in his... Sir John Waters. He's not English, he's from Baltimore. He's odd, but, you know, we've knighted him. Sure. Um, But yeah, we get John Waters directing Johnny Depp in, like, his... I think, arguably his breakout role? Yes, this is after 21 Jump Street... Uh, right before Edward Scissorhands. Really right before Edward Scissorhands. And we have a good guest on that episode. We so do. where can they go to find it? If you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube, where I do my little uh, slideshows that I like to call videos. And I'm actually updating our YouTube channel again, so Woo-hoo! there should be more videos up there. 
Uh, but yeah, go there, like, comment, subscribe, check out some of the older episodes. But if you want to follow us on social media, you can always go to the Film Club Podcast on Instagram, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, trivia, and our random adventures we go on. And with that, we'll see you next week at the Film Club. Have a good week, everybody. Bye.